0: suncast is brought to you by sungrow providing clean power for all suncast is also brought to you by trina solar
1: maybe don't all believe is quite as important anymore as the dual axis solar tracker oh yeah it's like the fanny pack of the solar industry <laughs> uh, so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey there solar warriors i'm nico johnson and this is suncast each week I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth, so thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. I'm truly honored to be in your ears yet again and bringing you another fantastic cleantech founder's story. Well, today's entrepreneur is building one of those pickaxe-type companies that Seattle, Washington is so famous for. You know, the kind that support an entire industry that they serve. Microsoft, Amazon, the list goes on, as you'll see later in the episode. And I think that drift has the potential to hold a similar place in our minds as renewable energy increasingly becomes the core of our energy infrastructure. Greg Robinson and his team at Drift envision and indeed have built a marketplace where consumers and small business owners can buy the energy they want at the lowest price when they buy power directly from the people who make it. Today, we'll discover how. A quick shout out to my friend Katie Ullman over at Drift who helped make this episode possible. You can check out this and other Gray Founders stories and solar startup advice in more than 160 other episodes archived at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, do check out the Suncast Tribe or jump on the mailing list so you don't miss out when the next episode drops. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we get to hang out with another tech startup entrepreneur tackling some of the core infrastructure problems of energy from the heart of the, the tech industry up in Seattle. Mr. Greg Robinson, co-founder and CEO of Drift, is building an online marketplace, a place where consumers and businesses can buy the power directly from people who make it. We're going to learn more about why that matters and how this idea came to fruition. But first, Greg, welcome to Suncast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, Greg,
0: you're in the, the solar and clean renewable energy business That's not exactly where your story begins. You and I have, it turns out, a whole lot in common. So I'd like to ask if you could take me back to maybe your first job or your first iteration of what you might call a career and how you decided to move on from that and ultimately how you ended up in the energy industry.
1: Career is a tough word for me. I spent most of my middle school, high school, and a little bit of my elementary school years in upstate New York. and then. Actually, when I was in middle school, I thought I was gonna be a doctor. Saying I thought I was gonna be a doctor was like kind of a light word. Like I basically knew I was gonna be a doctor. Like when I was in seventh grade, I basically knew where I was gonna to go to college. I knew what I was gonna do. I knew that I was gonna be an orthopedic surgeon. I sort of Whoa. had this. Was that family
0: background or just deep interest?
1: No, I literally cause I broke a bunch of bones when I was a kid and I spent a lot of time there and it just looked really looked interesting. What ended up happening is I've always I've never wanted to commit to something that long term unless I could like kind of test and iterate along the way. And so what I did was I tried to see if I could get a job at a hospital. And so I got a job at a hospital in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina as a phlebotomist. New mm-hmm. Hanover Re- Regional Medical Center over there. Yeah, and not, not far from where I'm standing today. I did it. And some of the coolest people I've ever met. And I just, for me, it wasn't like the medical industry was, was not really.
0: You get to use the word phlebotomist on a regular (laughs) basis. I mean, that's a great thing to have in your byline.
1: Yeah, but it was really, really quickly. I I realized that I I did not like, that wasn't the career for me. So Mm. basically from the time I was in middle school, I thought this would be my career. And now I was sort of standing there like, oh my gosh, like I have no career. And were you in school or you'd already gotten out of school or? I started school and then I left school because it was like, I'm not sure I want to commit to this for a super long time. So I actually left. I was initially a college dropout. So I went to become a phlebotomist. And after about a year there, I had played music my whole life. And I was like, well, maybe I'll try my hand at playing music. And so I actually packed up my car with all my music equipment and maybe a couple of trash bags of clothing and then moved across to Seattle to basically become a rock star, I think is the easiest way.
0: You figure if Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice and Chains and Food Fighters, I mean, there, there are only a few bands who've made it in Seattle. It's not a bad choice.
1: That's right. It was about 10 years late, but yeah. Was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I, I went out and I, I just sort of started to like hustle for gigs. And I think that was really the beginning of like my entrepreneurial lifestyle, which was like, oh, like I can actually go do it and it could potentially turn out to be a quote unquote career and so for me it was just like going out there playing music i played a gig like for like two years on tuesday nights at a place near the space needle and that was just awesome i mean just totally let me like cut my teeth on standing in front of a bunch of people like being nervous having to prepare for a show Like, and so i did that and that really ended up for me being my first sort of career move. I helped open up a music school. I taught guitar lessons for many years, almost a decade actually, while I was kind of also dabbling in the energy industry. So the transition was music is a tough gig to make money in unless you are massively massively successful at it. And unfortunately being massively successful in music is not actually does not directly correlate to being really really good at music. Ah, that's uh, right. You could be amazing and then still not make it. And so I was really interested at that point. Like we had done some recording. I was like, oh, these recording studios are really cool. I would love to get into this space of like, you know, learning more about acoustics, getting into like building recording studios. And so I went back to school at University of Washington. And the only place you learn about acoustics is in physics and the physics program. So I majored in physics and just something crazy happened there where like all, there was all this swirling of like you're taking... At one point, I'm taking quantum mechanics or statistical mechanics where you're just doing a lot of math for modeling. And then on the other hand, you're learning about like power systems, which power systems are a huge thing for recording studios. Like the power quality is so important for audio, right? And so I'm learning about power quality and tuning of circuits and how supply and demand essentially on on your circuit has to match at all times or else start creating weird, complex things. And then I also took a tremendous amount of atmospheric science. So I had the weather, I had the power grid, and I had like statistical modeling of systems, like all going on at once. And I had a professor who talked a lot about solar energy and wind energy and as you do in Seattle at college. So we're talking a lot about that. Oh my gosh, like this is going to be a nightmare to manage the power grid when we get to high renewable penetration. And so that was like 2008, 2007, 2008. As soon as I graduated, I was like, oh my gosh, like I have to do something in this space. And actually one of our co-founders of Drift was starting a company in the solar tech space, specifically around solar trackers, if you remember what we all believed was important in 2008 maybe don't all believe is quite as important anymore as the dual axis solar tracker. Oh yeah. It's like the fanny pack of the solar industry. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so awesome. So, so we worked on building a dual axis tracker that would of course give us more output on solar panels. Wait, and, was this the PV hardware or PV fix or whatever? Uh, no, it was a company called Questor energy systems and mostly ended up working on like, the ROI, right? You had to just prove to somebody why this was like financeable and you could put it out there. And so I was working a lot on the ROI. Like I was working on the models, like trying to figure out like, is this going to work? How much land do you need? Like where's the shading? Like all of those things as as you would do back then in the solar industry. And I met a guy in Eastern Washington who had like 80 acres of land and, and it was a really optimal site for these systems to go. We were like, oh, well, you could just sell it to your neighbors. We'll just work with mm-hmm. the local co-op and they would love to see that happen. Long story short, like nobody loved to see that happen. <laughs> you know, it was like there were these buyers and there was the demand for it, and there was a seller and there was a supply for it. And all the the financing was there, but it just you couldn't get you couldn't tie those two things together. And then we started kind of thinking about like myself and then the, the founder and president of Impressor Energy Systems and then this was Ed. So this was Alan Tilly, and then okay. uh, the story of Ed Mackenzie and I is like an entire podcast. So we're gonna have to have, <laughs> have, to have a, another one for that. But Ed had worked at Google Maps. Like he's just like he had worked on the Alaska Airlines mobile apps. Like he he had done some really heavy like software infrastructure lifts in his career, and he had worked on at Microsoft on real-time communication, which is now Link, which, you know, is a huge part of their business. And so he had been in there and it was like, oh, like this needs to be a software platform. Like getting this supply to this demand, getting this renewable supply to this like demand for renewable energy or sustainable energy is like, this needs to be a software platform. And not like eBay, but it needs to literally transform like the creation of sustainable power into power service where people can like, reliably depend on this this energy and we don't just keep dreaming about batteries being here someday at ubiquity you know like this was in 2013 so it was like we're sort of sitting there trying to figure out how this becomes a software platform we got enough idea of how this this could work to the point that was like okay well if you build this software platform People will be able to buy power from their neighbors. Big, giant companies will be able to buy power from other big, giant companies who have built their own infrastructure. The models worked, you know, that you could see that something would work. And so I essentially decided that, hey, we're going to start this new company, Drift. And so that was 2014, I think we incorporated Drift. I shouldn't say I think it was June 27th. 2014. Uh,
0: yeah. So, but one thing, you know, you and Ed were co-founders or rather, you worked together. I'm trying to put the pieces together. At Woven, is that right?
1: So the original name of Drift was Woven Inc., but that was because we didn't know any better and we the vowels out of names, and it was impossible <laughs> to spell on the phone. And
0: so, very millennial of you,
1: <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious about. Actually, I want to. I want to
0: backtrack for a couple of things that piqued my interest one was he broke a lot of bones as a kid doing what <laughs> oh
1: man probably for the same reason i named the company woven it's just like it's just too stupid to know any better i suppose uh, <laughs> i mean anything from like i fell down a hay chute in a barn because i thought that it would be cool to like climb down it and then <laughs> and I mean, it was pretty. Young. I was pretty young when I did it. You're that kid
0: that your siblings were like, "Mom, Craig uh, again."
1: <laughs> yeah, basically. I think the only other one worth talking about is my. Uh, I think I tried to do like a 360 on a bike, and I made it to like 60. <laughs> and that was it, yeah. So it was.
0: Oh, well, what goes up? Well that that That's brings right. me to that brings me to my. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning
1: you <laughs> that rotation not working. It wasn't, it wasn't great. That's why I had uh, a major in physics because I was yeah like, this no is exactly this thing that happened to me in seventh grade. I just could not you know I needed to prove why that didn't work. So so do, <laughs> so do you
0: like math? I love math. You love yeah, math. I mean you got to if too. you make it. Yeah. I decided I decided I wasn't going. This is another thing that ridiculously like we have in common. I decided I wasn't going to pursue my desire to build, actually build auditoriums and learn acoustics when I realized that I suck at physics and that's a mm. real big requirement.
1: <laughs> As yeah. a sophomore
0: in college, I was like, hmm, D in physics. I don't think I ever got a D in anything. Uh, let me just think about this again.
1: Yeah. I've always really been into, I've always been in like really into to math. I, I love, I mean, to me, like it's just always a puzzle. And when I, even when I started majoring in physics, I mean, I, like if I take us back then, it's like I, I was four years from the last math test that I had taken, really, because it was, I think it was a junior in high school or something. And since I had really done any kind of real deep math, if you do deep math in high school, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure, but when I was doing any (laughs) of that. And so I I had to spend the whole summer before I went back to physics, because there's no way I was going back to Calc 1 and starting Mm -hmm. over at Calc 1. I, I... First off, like I was doing this on, you know, I was paying for it. And when you're paying for it, you're like, no, I'm not going to go take those two other classes. Sorry. And so calc three, I was starting right out in calc three. And this is after being a musician. And let me tell you how little math you do as a musician. So you. How little math you
0: internalize as as like calculations. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and all the time staying up playing gigs and doing all that, and you just start to do things to your brain cells that you didn't expect you were going to do. So you need a you need you, back
0: for that calculus.
1: Exactly. So I spent the whole summer going through this this calculus book, uh, just doing all the problems, just like self studying, so I could be up to calc three by the time I went back. And, and so I hate,
0: I hate to point this yeah. out, but I'm just watching on any other podcast or in any other sector, you probably had would have distanced yourself from my audience so far by being such a math nerd. But it turns out <laughs> it turns out that in the solar industry, you're a rock star. <laughs> so you get to yeah. you get to live that duality with the physics background and the fact that you love math. I'm curious and, and you're clearly a, a startup junkie. This is something that is is in you. How does the physics and love of math manifest itself for you in the building of a company?
1: I'm really into building like winnable games. And when you're building winnable games, you're really just saying, okay, how do we incentivize this outcome and then build towards and build towards that? And I think in math, it really helped me going through physics to see that it's all about, you know, how do we boil this outcome down into like an action that we can take every single day to, to get towards that. It's literally like physics laws are like that, right? It's like, let me boil this like general law down into this one equation so that we can all, sort of agree that, Hey, here's a system that so long as we just keep doing this, like the buildings stay up or, you know, like as long as we all agree on that. And so I think when with company building, it's been such a cool, a cool opportunity. I mean, we're still very, very early on and I don't want to proclaim to be an expert at it, but the journey of company building from a human standpoint and the journey of culture building, which to me, I think it says on my LinkedIn that you know, I think it's the most important product you build as your company, as your culture. And so if you build those systems and it has the winnable outcome, you can start to sort of create like an immune system in your company against really bad outcomes, because you're thinking about how do we create this outcome? And then coming backwards from how do we create this outcome to here's what we can do every single day that's discrete. It's one little tiny thing to do every single day to get to this big, massive outcome.
0: Greg, I hear you on the winnable game. You know, one of the things that stands out to me is this idea of culture. How is culture a product and why does that matter towards creating a winnable game?
1: Culture is a product in the sense that like when you're building a when you're building a product, you're really creating you're creating something that helps the human on the other side of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you help the human achieve their goals. And so all of your product design in your company is like around, hey, how do I help this human achieve their goals? And so if you consider that every single day somebody shows up at work they have a goal to hit or they have you know a, a life to fulfill or they have some kind of you know whatever it is their go- they have a goal you have to design a system so that people can come in and achieve their goal so a human can achieve their goal and ideally that ties up into a company goal right like whatever the company goal is in some way but yeah. that's not what drives humans that's not what drives right. me you know, that what drives humans is they're going to have their own subset of goals. They're going to have some potential that they want to gain uh, or want to achieve. They're going to have some kind of, uh, some kind of purpose in life. And, yeah. and I think it's nice working in sustainable energy because it allows people, especially people who live in like the Pacific Northwest. I mean, it's, you have a large population of people who are, are working to basically keep everything green out here. Right. So yeah, a lifestyle, <laughs> a lifestyle and culture goal right there.
0: You mentioned Ed comes from big tech. Google now famously introduced OKRs. So my question is how do you, how do you track whether or not you're building a good culture product? I mean, are you guys approaching it from a different perspective? What the, what does that look like inside the company?
1: As you get larger and you have like more people and you can manage it more more I'll say quantitatively. I use this analogy of like an orchestra versus say like a jazz quartet, you know, or a jazz ensemble. It's like when you're a small group of people, you can sort of look at each other and be like, "Oh, like It doesn't seem like you're feeling it today, you know, or it doesn't seem. And so we're still very much in the place where we can sort of look at each other and know each other and and be humans and see, Hey, there's a human problem right here. Let's note that. And it's not that they're, yeah, it's not that they're a problem. It's like someone's having a challenge. Some human is not achieving their goals. Right. Right. Which we would look at a user of a product and say, Hey, we're not helping this human achieve their goals. So you look at somebody on the team, it's easy to spot that. But other than that, I mean, we keep it super light. We, we just say, Hey, you know, here's the company goals. Here's what we need to drive towards. And the other thing that we're working on now, which is super exciting for me as we're you know, talking about building winnable games, is like, how do you, I don't want to say separate, but like, how do you look at the human as the human who wants to develop skills or they have skills that they want to get better or they have skills that they're already like one of the best at. And like, how do you just like let that sort of live on its own and then take those humans who have skills and and allow them to go achieve their own goals and the company's goals with those skills, right? Instead of boxing people in and saying, Hey, like, I know that you're, I'll use an example. It's like, I know that you're, you're in finance, but you also happen to have a computer science degree. So how do we take that person with that skill set and allow them to tackle problems? to help our customers achieve their goals. So it's all about finding those discrete parts and then letting them apply those to, to solving bigger problems. We're not really very systematized at the time, but we, we really look at like, can you clearly say this person is working on this because they have these skills rather than filling in the blanks on their character or their skill set because you gave them a title. you know.
0: I find it interesting to think about it through the lens of someone outside of the context of your business. So for mm-hmm. you, perhaps that's the PTA. I, I would want to know, how do you talk about drift when you're at a PTA meeting?
1: Yeah, so I basically would say that, you know, we're helping people and companies be able to buy sustainable energy service. So I might use an example of a company and say, like, if this company wants to, you know, they have a goal of buying 100% sustainable energy, we kind of deal with everything that needs to happen to make it super easy for them to to just buy sustainable energy. They don't have to go write their own contracts or any of that. Who's your customer? Today, we're serving large and medium companies. There's companies that have made... They've come out and said, Hey, we're going to hit... We have this imperative to hit... Uh, you know 100 percent renewable energy. They have these huge goals, and then really, once you start digging into what it takes to hit those goals, is like you're saying you want to buy 100 percent renewable power service, which means you actually want to like buy it physically, and you want to run your applications, your lighting, your buildings, your HVAC, all those things on sustainable power service. That's what they're committing to, and really, I think to make the commitment is awesome. But actually carry that out, it is so expensive. It's like those early days of like when people were building their own data center infrastructure, or their own servers in the early days. Like, I want my business to run on the cloud. And it's like, or I want my business to run on the internet, period. And I want my applications to run on the internet. Like, how do I do that? And it's like, well, you can go build a whole bunch of stuff, try to provision it for your applications, try to configure it so that you can run your business on it, and good luck. Yeah. Or... Like, nowadays, we look at it as just such a no brainer. It's like, Oh, well, or you can have all this other infrastructure that's out there. And it can meet all of your needs, it could hit your goals, you can get fast processing, or you can get, you know, slow storage or whatever you want. And you're gonna and you just basically pay for what you need. As your demand goes up and down, all of the infrastructure sort of follows in line with that. To actually do that is like, you have to take this wild like wind, sun, let's say run of river hydro, And you have to package all that up and turn that into not just power or energy, you have to turn it into a service that is, you know, if a company comes along, like there's a, there's a great Google white paper out there about 24 seven matching of power. It's like, really all they're saying is like, we want to provision only enough sustainable power to meet our demand. No more, no less. And that really, at the end of the day, like if you say, I want my business to run on sustainable power, you're basically saying, I want it to run when I use power and I want to buy it when I use it. I don't want to sort of continue to to move forward this, this fallacy that you can somehow green power last year that you purchased, you know, like, without actually understanding what you're running your applications on. And so I think that's kind of where we're at, I, I think, in, in um, with these customers is they want to run their applications, basically their electricity or electrified applications on sustainable power. Until now, there's really no way to take this wild power supply from renewables and sort of statistically model it into power service so that they're, they're purchasing that. I
0: was going to ask what are the common misconceptions about the platform, but it seems like this is one.
1: Yes, this is the, I think the difference between the word power and power service, like renewable power and renewable power service, I think there's a massive gap between those two statements. What other
0: quandaries do you, does your team constantly have to sort of? What moles are you whacking to try and build as you build out this product? I mean, as I understand it, there's not this this doesn't exist anywhere in the clean energy space, right? I mean, Drift is trying something totally new.
1: The big quandary is is also the word sustainable, right? Like, what does sustainable actually mean? Not just from like what types of power sources are sustainable, but what does that word actually entail? And and I think if you look at you know what what happens like to me what happens when you ignore the way the power grid actually works right the way supply and demand matching actually has to work where it has to has to match pretty much exactly within you know a couple within a percent and a half like pretty much exactly all the time yeah and when you ignore that and you just say 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 you want to go 100% renewable so you build a wind farm something like that and you say great this matches annually. It's like, well, that's not actually how the power grid works. And so if we really want to get to a a grid that's 100% renewable, we need to start bringing sort of the physics of the power grid back into the conversation. And I think that's where that's one of the big pieces that we look at is like, both environmental sustainability and economic sustainability is like, how expensive is it going to be if we just cover the grid with renewables wherever it's convenient, versus where it's needed and when it's needed. And so that's a big one.
0: I had a conversation with Deep at Enact and it seems like, you know, a lot of their businesses this service side of the business now as well where municipalities, businesses, corporates, you know, retail giants are all committing to this presently intangible goal. And when you look into it under the hood, there's there's not a lot there in terms of the of the vehicle to get them from point A to point B. Is that is that one of the ways that you guys are building your platform is to help these these folks navigate the decision-making process or or how do you see your role in the, in the overall energy market?
1: I think a lot of it is like one of the biggest nightmares I would say across all of the energy industry is contracts and payments. If you just look at any, anywhere, like (laughs) Mm -hmm. standardization of contracts, standardization of payment, speed of payments. Like, I mean, there's some markets in the country that don't settle for seven months or more. (laughs) finally settle once they've collected all the data. So mm-hmm. I think like when you start to look at it like that, like that goes into the question of how long do my contracts have to be to make sure I can build this one farm? or How long do my contracts have to be? And how big is my collateral that I have to post in the market to get yeah. this power to even go into the grid? And so once you start to look at all of the like collateral, we kind of look at collateral as an inefficiency, right? It's like, like AWS doesn't make you post collateral to get Inner, the cloud service. Right. Right. Because they've sort of dealt with all the complexities underlying that so that they can just get a service. And so that's why I say, you know, I know it's pretty nuanced, but like, that's why we talk a lot about service versus just creating sustainable power.
0: AWS doesn't create c- collateral because the, the lost customer value is low. Like there's so many people who will buy that extra kilobit of space that they don't, if you, if they lose you as a customer, you know, they haven't lost a whole lot of money. Whereas a renewable p- farm that had to get non-recourse financing has, if, if it loses its customer being a utility, or if it uses, it loses Apple as it's key right. in the community farm, they're, they're really in
1: trouble. It can't reprovision. It, it can't reprovision. Enough, right? That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. If we were to talk again in 10 years, when we talk again in 10 years, that's right. <laughs> Uh that will be what we will be talking about, is that Drift came in and used data and payments and digital contracts and all of those things kind of speed up the speed of transactions so that we didn't have all these massive inefficiencies and you could reprovision supply instantaneously. So that now you don't have kind of the issues that we we face today.
0: I mean, this ultimately, it fundamentally changes the economic structure of the development Piece of the business, right? Because one of the things, right, like that you and I know that many listeners know, but not all, is that if you're developing a solar project, you have to think about the revenue streams. Next Era and Eight Minute Energy and Synetics and all these big IPPs and developers are constantly thinking about the contracted energy. And that's how they can justify putting down the capex and, and that's how they develop their ROI. And it's because they can't get a bank to finance an asset that has an unknown buyer. But what you're saying is that in five to 10 years, you'll be able to finance these solar projects at an infrastructure level because the demand is high and the infrastructure through Drift and potentially other competitors exists to be able to, as you say, reprovision, which is to say, bring in another customer should you have a, a customer default or, or go away. That's right. It's basically, yeah. a, it's basically a, a synthetic merchant market.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You basically what you're doing is you're taking all of this physical infrastructure and you're virtualizing it so that like exactly the way cloud service works is like somebody Mm. needs cloud service and it doesn't matter if you're pulling from, you know, 4000 locations, you know, or you're pulling from one or you're pulling from Mm. two. And I think like it, that's what it does is it makes it, I mean, you say that it would change the entire finance economics. I mean, we see a world again in 10 years. I think you're going to start to see people doing what what you just said, which is merchant. You're going to see people literally just building systems the way you might build like a residential real estate development. You know, because like,
0: they know uh, that. Yeah, because they, they know the demand is sufficient and that, there's exactly. a pl- and that there's a, we'll call it a platform, just like the yeah. the, the realtor industry that will help yeah. you sell it. Um, exactly right. Well, it seems to me like reselling power is also kind of like a realtor going to be a job in the future that doesn't exist today. Hey, are you still managing your solar development portfolio in Excel? I'll forgive you if you are, but if you've been schlogging along, waiting for the perfect software solution to aid you in the transition to a true database platform, then you're in luck. My friends at FTC Solar created Atlas, a bit to scratch their own itch, but they then realized that they created something any developer can use. It's an enterprise-level, customizable database platform designed to support renewable energy project development. Accessible anywhere there's an internet connection, Atlas includes elements of CRM, project management, data storage, and finance in a single package that is solar-ready out of the box. With all the Atlas platform has to offer, it's no wonder solar developers are ditching the spreadsheets and switching to Atlas to manage their project portfolio. If you want to learn more and request your free trial, please head over to go.ftcsolar.com forward slash suncast. You could also just click on that FTC solar banner at mysuncast.com. How did you and your co-founders think about the capital stack for getting a, yet another software company off the ground?
1: Yeah. So my key qualifications for going out and raising capital was, was that I was the lead singer of a band. So <laughs> I, I knew how to the front <laughs> stand man. up in front of I knew how to go be a front man. So what I did was I did what any, any new, entrepreneur who doesn't know anything about venture capital does they buy venture deals the book highly recommend it if you're thinking about raising capital and or if you have and you don't know what you're doing that was really the book that kind of showed me hey like this is an industry you're just going to have to face a ton of rejection so it really took me back to the days of getting gigs and trying to get gigs and playing music and at the very beginning, it was, hey, this is going to be massively hard to do. We have like a huge vision to actually build it. There's a tremendous amount of regulatory stuff to navigate. There's a tremendous amount of technology that you're going to have to build to sign up one customer. And that was nuts. And that was really hard to actually go raise capital because, you know, we, we live in the days of the lean startup and everybody thinks you just spin up a mobile app and, a, and a, an AWS instance and you've got yourself a company. And just start signing up customers as fast as you possibly can. And I think when you're trying to do something in an industry that is, you know, is as fragmented as the electricity supply chain has become, and is as heavily regulated as, as the energy space or as electricity specifically, and you know that you're just going to need like the best capital partners, the grittiest the boldest <laughs> capital partners you can possibly find. So I started doing all of my research on who, who are these people. And I think my second VC pitch of my life was at Andrews and Horowitz. How'd you get that in that meeting? We were working with Perkins Cooey in That's a lawyer. In, a in Seattle. Firm? Yeah. Yeah. A legal firm and in Seattle. And there's a guy on the team uh, named Ka Dang and he helped us incorporate the company as outside counsel at Perkins Cooey. And he had a connection to actually to Adrian Fenty. Adrian Fenty is now uh, an investor in Drift, but he was the mayor of Washington D.C. Oh, wow. and was like a biz dev person for Perkins Coie, also a special advisor to Andrew's and Harrow. So there was this link between the two places. And I have this networking philosophy of how you have to, it's super nerdy, which is like, you have to create covalent bonds, right? Like you have (laughs) to have someone who wants to see you for some reason, as well as you want to see them. Wow! And so try to create that with any, any outreach that I'm going to do to anyone is just like, why do they want to talk to me? And it can't just be because like, I think I'm cool or something, you know, or I think like they have to want to talk to me. You have to get those incentives aligned so that, again, you can create a winnable game. So he made an introduction to Adrian. I don't think I've ever actually told Adrian this story. So I'll say it here. Basically just said, Hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco on Thursday. Truth was I was not going to be in San Francisco on Thursday, but if he said that he would meet with us, I was going to be in San Francisco on Thursday. So sure. So he says, great. Let's meet at Andrews and Horowitz at the offices. And so It's like, fantastic. So we go down there and I tell him, you know, what we're doing. And at the time it was some, I was talking a lot about features and, you know, I was very, very, very in the weeds at that time trying to figure out what the technology was. So it was really just pitching the technology platform that we were going to have to build, which if you can imagine, if you were doing that for AWS, you'd be talking about like redundant servers and how you, Mm -hmm. how you provision data, which would be the most boring thing versus what AWS actually is. And so at the time I was really in. in the bits and bytes, basically. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I think he said something like, sounds like something has to happen here. And this sounds super, you know, revolutionary. It's like, I don't really understand it. It's way over my head. And I think as an entre- as an early entrepreneur, like that felt like a badge of honor that I was able to like do things that were over people's head and sounded revolutionary. But now one thing that, you know, I, would, I always tell anybody starting a company is just like their confusion is your problem. It's your fault, not their fault. And I, it took me... Years to deal with that while you were, while I was raising capital, you know. Yeah, um,
0: I feel like that's just, that's a problem that you, actually that you. I'm glad you point on it. That a lot of solar companies get stuck on. It's like why haven't they closed the deal? Why does commercial yeah. take eight months? The reason is because their confusion is your problem. <laughs> yeah, you haven't figured out how to communicate this message in a way that resonates, yeah. and and, uh, and you haven't made it
1: easy. That's right for them to contract with you. Mm, like you haven't right. made it easy for someone to. I mean, this is like, this is like retail 101. I don't know who originally said it, but it's like, they talk about retails and the details, right? Like you have to think about every single piece of how to get someone to transact with you. That yeah. goes from hiring people. That goes from getting your team to work together. That gets, goes to getting customers. It goes to fundraising. That goes to anything you're doing. It's like you have to make it easy mm. for people to transact with you. And that's your problem. <laughs> Not their problem. I used to be one of those people in the solar industry. Is like, well, people don't really invest in this kind of stuff. And it's like, that's a lie that that leads to losing for sure. So basically, he gave us an introduction to Andreessen and got us a meeting with a, with a general partner there. And it was an absolute disaster. I had no clue. Like I had read venture deals, but venture, venture deals, unfortunately, just teaches you what you do when you have a term sheet and you're negotiating terms. It doesn't say, hey... Here's actually here's actually how you get to one of those. So I would, uh, and, and it was so early. So right. repressed memories to kind of talk about this stuff. But I think that it's really important that early.
0: Well, Brad would say you're enjoying tech stars now, right? But you didn't
1: <laughs> didn't have right. the
0: options back in the '08.
1: No, I didn't. And, and even if we did, I I don't know if we. I think we were, were like, we're pretty much, in, we were pretty far outlier in terms yeah. of like what we were trying to do. I mean, I was basically going to people and being like, Hey, like we essentially have to start a federal utility company before we can sign up customer one. Wow. And that wouldn't even be a customer. They'd be like a patient. I, mean, I think we called them patient zero. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, what the heck is going to happen when this person signs up for the service? So my meeting with Andrews and was was an absolute disaster, but the kind of dramatic irony of it is that. Six months later, we were contacted by one of their board members who's a very early stage investor. And I say very, very early stage investor. Her group is called Third Kind Ventures and she literally looks for people who like have a vision of the future that no one believes in. Sort of like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And mm. if you have this vision of the future that no one else believes in, you're going to take, you're going to go achieve that. And you're going to go build towards that. Like she wants to find those people. She ended up investing in us super early, two thousand. 15, gave us like a small amount of seed money to, to get going. Fast forward, we raised again the, on a round that was led by first round capital, which is, I think they just had three people on the Forbes minus list. And then we raised again from, that was led by IA ventures. And and so when you look at that progression through raising capital, it was like, it was all about like getting the, the charge that we needed to get to the next place to do the learning or whatever it was, and then get, get, you know, charge up again to be able to get the federal utility licenses to sign up the initial customers and then, you know, raise again to be able to overcome sort of like the technology risk. Basically you're just, you're just constantly doing this risk mitigation, right? Like, yeah. And so first was let's mitigate the risk on like vision, mission, product idea. Let's mitigate the risk, the regulatory risk, let's mitigate the technology risk. And then, and kind of the market risk. like, how do you get the first, you know, a thousand people on this platform to, to really show what it can do. And then you just continue to capitalize so that you're mitigating big giant risks with each, with each capital raise. And, and I think all too often at the beginning, it's easy to get stuck in that loop of like, why doesn't anyone believe me? Why doesn't anyone <laughs> believe in me? Why, why am I, you know, I'm a victim of the venture capital industry. And it's like, and I think there were days for sure where I felt that way. I think I was turned down by 66 people before I got a check I don't know. At some point, you just got to keep, keep going. <laughs> yeah. I, could, I could give all the advice in the world about raising capital. It's like, just don't, just don't quit.
0: Just don't quit. Yeah. <laughs> well, along the lines of advice, what are some key takeaways or lessons from some of the mentors in your life helping you make these decisions?
1: Uh, I think the, the biggest takeaway from any mentor for me is <laughs> this is going to sound so basic, but her very first investor was just always, she's always used to say, like, just be clear. And I didn't really realize how profound that statement is because you could say that, you could, you could post that on your mirror every mm-hmm. morning and just look at it and be like, just be clear. And, and just every day, like you can be clearer. You can gain more clarity. You can mm-hmm. gain more clarity for everybody. You can gain more clarity to the people who are on the PTA board with you. You know, you can gain more clarity for the, your customers. You can gain more clarity for everyone, mm-hmm. you know, for your spouse to believe in you. You know what I mean? Like there's all those things matter when you're, when you're building when you're building a, a startup and, and when, when the expectation is to build a very high growth startup. And, and, you know, I'm just about to have my fourth kid. It's like, you kind of have to make sure that like all of these people around you and, and your co-founders and your teammates and just everybody is like, just be clear. And a lot of people want to give up before they are clear. And then once they feel like they're clear, they get mad, might get mad because they feel like people don't understand them. And it's like, that's, it's a new level of being clear. <laughs> So yeah, it's one of my, one of my biggest things that I try to kind of one of like the the little things that I try to make sure that I remember. And then one other thing would be really understand the drivers of your business. That again is a very loaded thing. It's like really, really, really true. Like we even run into this in drift is like using the right words Mm -hmm. so that you're all precise, you know, like you like even the word renewable energy is like imprecise as we talked about before, you know, it's someone else might have a definition that's different from yours. And so like, I guess it kind of, but this all boils up to, or I mean, kind of ties up to being clear, but really understanding what drives your business, not businesses do this, or I read a new biography and this is what this person does. Or I listened to Greg on this podcast and, and he said, this is what they do. And Mm -hmm. I think like really, really, really getting down to the core drivers of your business. Like in many cases, I'll give you an example. In many cases in our business versus say like a SaaS business can just look at revenue. They can be like, hey, revenue is like this really important metric that we should look at. When you're in the energy business, especially specifically the renewable energy business, if you just looked at like total dollars, total transactions in, that can dip because the wind speed died down. Mm Mm-hmm. There's literally nothing on your team, like nothing that your team can do, you know, to make up for that issue. And so you sort of have to make these more complex metrics to track so that, again, you're creating a winnable game. Really, really understanding those. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs who will be like, hey, can you introduce me to this person? Or you can introduce me to these other venture capitalists. And that would be my, that just makes it really easy for, for that entrepreneur. And then when I, if I talk to them and it's like, I'm just always really trying to understand, like, do they understand what drives their business? That's not just something you sit down for in five to 10 minutes and figure out. That's like, that's a journey.
0: Well, Greg, I am going to forego my traditional hot or hype segment, but I do have a question that I would be remiss to not actually drill down on because I think that your technology and where you sit at the nexus of these contracts of clearing, as you said, clearing, transactions, et cetera. A lot of folks may have listened earlier and thought, hmm, really interesting, clearing contracts and having very clear, you know, what some might refer to as smart contracts. It starts to sound a lot like blockchain. What is your position on blockchain and especially as it relates to the energy market?
1: Oh, man, that is like the, this is the question of, of my life typically is uh, I look at that from two different angles. So one is like, what is blockchain's application? in the electricity industry specifically. Mm -hmm. I think there's enough data to say that if we had a ledger that tracked who transacted with who, who paid who, and that could happen using software, and that could be shared across all stakeholders, like, yes, (laughs) that needs to happen. You know, whether that is a permissionless system or it's centralized, like I'm definitely not the person, like I don't even have enough of an opinion on that to answer it and sway the conversation. But on the other hand, I think that running institutions on digital contracts, all I hear is I wanna run my institution on the internet that is run by electricity service. And so I actually look at blockchain as an application on top of the electricity, on reliable electricity service. And I think there is massive application for blockchain in rural areas it's harder for centralized applications to manage like rural zones or developing countries and in, in villages. It's harder to manage those kinds of things. But blockchain relies on a reliable electricity service. And so I'm more interested in this idea of like, how do we actually create reliable interest electricity service for the world so that this promise of blockchain can actually exist everywhere? And so I'm I'm probably looking at it more from that side. The technology side is like, I think that, You use it if the application calls for it, and you don't use it if the application doesn't call for it. There are several places where you would use it, even at Drift, and there are several places that you wouldn't use it because it just doesn't, it's just like, it, you just use it to tell people you used it and that's not yeah. that doesn't seem good enough
0: <laughs> yeah, which so, seems like about 50% of the blockchain references out there right? Now. exactly yeah. it's almost, it's like it, it's the it's like machine learning and AI we will go there today but I'm sure okay. that you have your opinions in, on, I have a lot um, of opinions
1: about that that just boils down to math for me yeah, so yeah. I say yes <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I presume
0: that given that as a physics major in the age of machine learning there is some, some level of machine learning engine behind uh, Drift well, we believe here that leaders are readers and uh, readers are leaders. And I always want to know what book have you gifted or, or recommended the most and why?
1: Lately, is um, it's a book called Primed to Perform.
0: Primed? with the past, Primed. primed.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Primed uh-huh. to Perform. It's by Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor. Okay. And it is, uh, I think that it's one of those books that I always gauge books based on like, how much does it just update my mental model? Mm-hmm. And this one is just like, it just talks about motivation of people and like what people are motivated by. And I felt like finally I read a book that was like, oh, that's actually how I'm motivated. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs because they actually unlock how they're motivated. And so she she, she dives into that. I highly recommend that book.
0: Any other book that has... Had a particularly lasting uh, impact on the way that you lead or the way that you think about
1: business. The book that probably updated my mental model again the most would be most recently, and I have I have almost like a two books that sort of work together. One is Blitzscaling, which is oh, a yeah. Reid Hoffman book, and then the other one is is Zero to One, Ooh, yeah. which is a Peter Thiel book. So, and I don't think it's uh, it's a coincidence that Peter Thiel was. And read off Hoffman work together at PayPal. Those to me, coupled together is sort of like zero to one to me is sort of like the rules and principles of going, of doing this zero to one jump, like where you're truly doing something that has not been done before. If people are trying to do that, and I've joked around before, Is like, we almost need to create like a support group for people who are like trying to make that jump because it's a, it's a scary jump. It's hard. No one believes you. People think you're crazy. You start to believe maybe you are. But you don't get discouraged. And so like I think that that's just an interesting space versus going like one to ten. And and then blitz scaling really talks about okay, you've gone zero to one. What do you do next? And so I sort of call it blitz is sort of like applied zero to one. So <laughs> like, how do I apply these rules and now and now scale the business? It's so counterintuitive to how most people think about running businesses mm. and and coming from like running like a music school or running any small business is like so counterintuitive.
0: Can you give me an example of like one nugget of counterintuitive?
1: Uh cash flow. Uh-huh. I think that that's that would be the number one thing. Is just like your relationship with cash flow when you're trying to do something that can have lasting generational impact and and positive change on on the planet versus. You live and die by cash flow when you're a small business. It's like if these customers do not come in right now and pay me full price with this margin, I'm going out of business. Hmm. Versus when you're growing a business, you sort of look at it as like blitz scaling kind of dives into the principles of like if I'm scaling a business and want, then I want it to have like global scale. I want it to help people all around the world, not in this community. Then you kind of have to think differently about your relationship to to cash and cash flow.
0: As we wrap up here, I always like to figure out sort of how someone thinks about structuring their day or their life. Given our time, I'll hold off on morning routines, but I am curious what habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your life.
1: The biggest concept for me is this concept of like daily minimums, you know, just Mm -hmm. figuring out like, what are you going to do at a minimum every single day and just make sure it's there. And I don't judge myself too harshly on if I, if literally I missed the minimum, like Mm -hmm. I, I don't. I don't have remorse for it, is because I know that that daily minimum is coming again tomorrow. Really, just focusing on the on the moment and on the day—that's the biggest concept. But for me, having an annual goal has been really, really cool, and mm-hmm. I, I try to have an annual goal that's not necessarily tied to the business, but I just watch that that discipline yeah. sort of permeate the boundaries across everything in my yeah. life. So you,
0: you called it in our previous yeah. call—you called it an annual challenge, which I think stands
1: captures it better what was like what was your annual challenge for 18 so 2018 annual challenge was was super personal one because like for me being part of a team i mean we have like our age range on our team goes from our from 20s to 70 years old and we also have people from like we just have like people from all different like nationalities people who speak english as a second language People who socioeconomic classes uh, difference in growing up, and I think that really is important if you're going to really truly do something that helps a lot of people in the world. Because like how would how would I know? How would somebody else know what what the experience of of everybody is? And so for me, I'm like the co-founder and CEO. Like if I'm sitting in a meeting and I say we're doing this, it's like we're doing this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And I wanted to put myself in a, so my challenge for 2018 was like, I wanted to find something that where I was the odd one out that wasn't going to be the scenario for me and where literally nobody else was, was like me, or it would be considered maybe like weird that I was there. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, it almost is painful to actually say that this is the case at this point now that I've done it, but like was to be on the, I joined the PTSA board for my kid, for my daughter's elementary school. And, mm. and I, as a co-president and I, and I was the first dad to do wow. that in, in the history of the school, which I think was like 13 years or something. And I, and I knew it was going to be like this place where I would get into it. It's like, I, I'm not, I don't have any special, you know, like I, I don't have any, there's no like bias towards doing what, what I want to do versus in a lot of rooms that I'm in, there's like bias towards doing what I want to do. And so it really helped me to understand the perspectives and viewpoints of maybe other people who feel like, like they're in a room that isn't naturally made for them, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. I mean, this is just dipping my toe into it, by the way, there are many things that we could do to, to put ourselves in situations where there's not a bias towards doing yeah. what we want to do. I would say that was my 2018 so my 2019 goal, I had two of them. Uh, one of them is I, I want to run 1,000 miles this year. No shit. Um, that's, that's one of my goals. Did
0: we talk about there this? There you go. Golly, Maybe. the serendipity is crazy. <laughs> All
1: right, go ahead. And then, and then the other thing is I want, I want to be an effective remote team member at Drift because we now have employees in New York and I want to just experience it. Doesn't mean I will always be that, but I just want to, I want to experience what does it take to be effective on a team? that's remote. And it's easy when you're in the off, when you're in like the main age, you know, HQ, it's harder when you're not.
0: Okay. So Q, so Q1's gone. How many miles did you run in Q1? Not enough. (laughs) How are you tracking it? Strava?
1: Strava. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're,
0: we're holding each other accountable is goal. All right. you, I don't know who's going to help you be a more effective remote team member, but I will hold you to a thousand miles.
1: Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. I have Ragnar coming up. You're
0: going to be ahead yeah. of me then. Um, All right. <laughs> but Greg, hey, So Greg, where can people find you? Is there one place that most people can look to catch up?
1: You know, I'm going to say that you can catch up on LinkedIn mm-hmm. is probably the best. I'm. I will tell you that under most circumstances, I'm I'm not very good at managing my online channels, but I would say like LinkedIn. Is probably the best for keeping up. And of course, uh, Twitter. I'm Greg W. Robinson on Twitter. As
0: we wrap up, Greg, I'd like to know looking into your crystal ball, what one thing do you see happening? Perhaps nobody else is focused on or can predict. What's your bold prediction for 2019 and beyond?
1: I mean, I really do believe what we were talking about earlier is like, I, I believe it, when we're standing in 2025, we're going to start looking at, we're going to be having a lot more conversations about how do we turn how do we actually run the grid Hmm. on renewable power, not how do we get some big companies to buy it? If you want to know my really big Mm -hmm. crazy prediction is, you know, there's so much talk about like, what are we going to do when all the labor gets automated and all that Mm -hmm. stuff as we continue down that road? I actually think that it's, it's the responsibility will be in the electricity sector for figuring out how we get to like, you call it universal basic income or whatever. How do we compensate the demand side of the economy? And I think it's the electricity sector that's gonna have to figure that out because honestly, as more and more electric labor happens, the electricity grid is gonna be like the most critical industry in that future so I think the the place like the electricity sector is gonna benefit from a tremendous amount of electricity electric labor or the demand side of the economy might suffer for it, and so I think it's So that's kind of a call to responsibility. It's our responsibility to figure that out.
0: More to chew on uh, as if you did not have enough from today's guest, Greg Robinson, co-founder and CEO of Drift, your home for buying sustainable power as the future becomes increasingly renewable powered. Greg, update your LinkedIn profile. You will soon be a papa of four, not three. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on Suncast and good luck getting to a thousand miles. I'll be watching you on Strava. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warrior. And a huge thank you to Greg for giving Suncast an insider view on this fantastic business opportunity. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do take some time to show Greg and the Drift team, as well as myself, some love over on Twitter or LinkedIn. Share this podcast with your friends, your family, that guy you just ran by in the park, wherever you find it most relevant. Please, your recommendation is the highest compliment that we could ever receive. And sharing is how we get the message out. As they say, sharing is caring. If you just can't get enough of this story and you want to hear more than I encourage you to also check out Greg's episode on the Freeing Energy podcast, which is hosted by my friend and past Suncast guest, Bill Nussie. I'll leave a link in the show notes for that interview as well. To learn more about today's guest or past episodes, just click on that listen link at mysuncast.com. That'll take you to the episodes page. You'll get the show notes, social media and website links, fantastic book recommendations, and all the back catalog of other interviews chock full of goodies just like this one. As mentioned in the episode, if you're on Strava and you want to follow Greg or myself for our quest of a thousand miles, which, by the way, we're both struggling to hit, I might add, I'll leave the link to both our profiles as well in that show notes page. And while you're on my website, do please check out the Suncast Tribe, where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors. Click on the member button to learn more about what that entails, including that... Private episode that I published this week, the interview live at Solar Power Puerto Rico on distributed energy resources with David Sandbank from NYSERDA and Ann Hoskins from Sunrun, among others. It was quite the fantastic panel, but we just don't have space for all of these things on the Suncast feed. Well, meanwhile, we've just finished another wonderful episode here. I'm so happy you chose to join us this week. See you again next week as we hear from Mark Goodwin, the CEO of Apex Clean Energy. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.